I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. If you've been part of the Second Shift community for any period of time, you have heard the name Mita Malik. Mita is an old and dear friend of mine, of Gina's The Second Shift. She is the head of inclusion, equity, and impact at CARTA. Before that, she was at Unilever. She has a very deep background, first in marketing and then in DEI work. And she's been a champion for the second shift for a very long time and someone that we've worked closely with over the years. She just wrote a book taking all of that experience and her own personal journey called Reimagine Inclusion. And in it, she debunks 13 DEI myths that hold us back from transforming our workplace. Mita is such an empathetic and thoughtful and intentional leader. And It's all about being a change maker and how we do that by understanding, confronting, and mitigating our own bias, looking at the things that we've been told or we think, and really thinking through, is that real? Who told me I can't do that? Why can't I? Why can't we do this differently? And being somebody who wants to make change and sees it as only a positive in their organization and in their own lives. So in this conversation, I'm super excited. This book doesn't come out until the fall. I think we're one of Mita's first interviews. I highly recommend it. I think that she's just such a thoughtful person. She's also the host of a podcast called The Brown Table Talk Podcast, another one that I recommend if this is something that's interesting to you. And I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Hi, friends. Hello. I'm so happy to see you. It's so nice to see your face. It's been so long. It's so long. I didn't even know you wrote a book. Yeah. That's how long it's been. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Surprise. Actually, I was thinking about it. You know, it was three years ago right now. So Mita and I are friends for years and we concocted this great plan to launch this amazing parental leave program that we spent a huge amount of time working on. It was when you were at Unilever and you were the head of diversity, equity, inclusion at Unilever. And we created this plan. We brought in Google. We were going to launch it. We're all set to go. And I remember you calling me being like, um, we need to cancel because the world's shutting down. Yep. We had this big event we were going to do. Remember? It was yes. in April, three years ago. Yes, and I was right. so right. like, well, maybe, what do you think? And you were like, no, it's a company policy. Yeah, it's company, <laughs> yeah. And then it was a world policy. It yes. was, a, yes, I was in denial. And so in that time, you changed jobs. I have. Um, started a podcast, which is the Brown Table Talk podcast. Yes. You're now at Carta yes. um, in the lead role in equity, inclusion, and impact. Yes. and you wrote a book called Reimagining Inclusion. So congratulations. A lot of things have happened since that fateful. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is I'm telling people the story now. I wrote the book four years ago. Stop. Four years ago, I wrote the book 
And it has been a long journey to get it published. And I think often when we have these really big moments we see in social, like, oh, there's a book coming out. I have a book getting published. And people don't know the long road of rejections. And so I want to really be honest and talk about that, that I wrote this book four years ago. I went through a very traditional route. I got an agent. And I had so many no's, Jenny. It was things like, could you come back to me with a book that's more like Sheryl Sandberg? There are a lot of people who look like Mita writing about books like this. Another piece of feedback I got was like, Mita's writing's outstanding. She clearly has expertise and passion in this space, but she doesn't have enough followers. We don't know who's going to buy this book. And so it was really, I mean, it was devastating. And I had a friend who said to me, when I was at my lowest point, because I've gotten so many rejections. And she said, you know, focus on what you love doing, which is community, conversation, sharing content. And I continued to do that. And then I started Brown Table Talk podcast with my friend DC Marshall, which is part of the LinkedIn podcast network. And then D has a book deal with Wiley and Wiley came knocking and said, your co-host seems amazing. Like, is she interested in a book deal? So it's been four years in the making. I had no idea, but I really love that story. I always like to hear those kinds of stories where there's like perseverance and maybe you were on one path and then you like took a side step to do something different. And I, I would imagine that the podcast and doing, you know, your LinkedIn, you're, you know, you're a prolific writer, wasn't in the service of getting the book published. It was just in the service of doing your work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it wound up that you got the book published. Absolutely. And for me, writing is a craft. It's a passion. I've been writing ever since I could pick up a pencil or pen. And the other thing that people don't know about me is when I left undergraduate, I wrote three novels. I had an agent who was really mean and dumped me in a really horrible way, but I was young and really stubborn and didn't want to take feedback. So I just kept writing novels. Like I'd write a first one, people would give feedback. And then I'd be like, I'm not changing it. I'm going to write a second one, a third one. Went to graduate school because I was like, for an MBA, I was like, how am I going to pay money? How am I going to make money being a writer? I wrote a fourth novel, Jenny, a fourth novel. This is when you know, like, you just don't let dreams die. Like, I was just obsessed with writing and I always have been. Didn't get that published. And then I started a career in corporate America and somehow found my way back to writing. But so while you were the head of DEI at Unilever, which I know from you was a major job and just an, yes. an enormous undertaking to be in that role at that time in such an enormously big and like global company. And you have two very small children. Yep. You were also writing this book. Talk to me about that process because I really give you so much credit. I find it hard to like get my brain to focus on, on doing anything. Yeah. Writing is half discipline and half talent. And if you were more disciplined at it, you get better at it over time. And so I just committed to myself to write early in the morning or early at night when the kids were in bed. As we all know, for us who have, some of us who have small children, my children are now seven and 10, but it's the chaos in the morning, chaos in the evening. And for me, you just, you prioritize what's important in life. So that means I'm not Netflix binging anymore. That means I'm not drinking as much as I used to. It also means there are moments where I haven't been socializing as much. And I wish that wasn't the case, but getting a book published was important to me. And so I think we make time for the things that are important to us. And it doesn't always happen overnight, but it's setting those small goals. Like I still today probably write 30 minutes a day. Some of that doesn't ever see the light of day. Like no one will ever see it. 
sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I think that's part of the practice. And the do you like that. writing the nonfiction better than you like writing the fiction? Or what what do you write mostly? I think now it's more nonfiction. It's more my observations about the workplace, just like Dee and I talk about in our podcast, observations of what it's like to have been a woman of color, continue to be a woman of color, navigating workplaces and spaces. And so, yeah, maybe I will find my way back to fiction. But for now, I'm excited about nonfiction. You and I have had so many talks over the years about the workplace and how it relates particularly to women, but women of color and your personal experiences and the leadership role you were in. And I'm wondering in the four years from when you wrote the book until today, how much has actually changed? I'm a half glass full person. My husband so am I. half glass empty. I wouldn't continue this work if I wasn't half glass full. It is still exciting and still disheartening. It's the yin and the yang. It can be both things, can't it? Yes, absolutely. It is, it is both things for me. I had just a conversation recently with a friend where I said, I feel like this backlash against diversity, equity, and inclusion is coming. It's happening. If we all saw Andy Kessler's piece in the Wall Street Journal and the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and his opinion piece where he, I don't have the exact quote, but blames diversity demands for distracting the bank. I'm not a finance expert. I'm not an expert. I don't have deep expertise in the banking system. And I would probably bet you know, my house on the fact that that wasn't why what happened happened with Silicon Valley Bank. And so blaming it on diversity demands. So this sort of wave against anti-wokeness, anti-DEI, I think particularly, Jenny, with the diversity tipping point of May 2020, which my friend DC Marshall coined when George Floyd was murdered and corporate America finally stood up and said Black lives do matter. And just seeing sort of what's been happening over the last few years it is disheartening and progress is slow. It doesn't mean we stop doing the work, but it is a mixed bag. Definitely a mixed bag. I feel the same way where sometimes I feel like very disheartened doing the work because it it's like a little bit like, you know, Joe pushing the boulder, you know, constantly up. Yes. Doesn't feel like you ever reach the top. And then there's like the masochist, maybe we're masochists because then there's like the pride in trying the purposefulness of your work, knowing that there's like, you're making a difference, even if you never get to the, that top, you're, you're, you're making the effort. Absolutely. And doing something that's intentional with your life and like really trying to make a change and help people. It feels good. It feels good. And I also, I'm sure you feel the same way. We want this world to be different for our children, for all of our children. I don't want my children to grow up in the environment I grew up. And I hope that their workplace experiences are different, whatever they choose to do, whether they choose to, like you, co-found your own company, or they choose to go work for a corporation, that things are different. And so we do that as well for them. Absolutely. And there is something about you that I think is really great. And why I've always been very attracted to the way that you think of things is that you're very realistic about the issues and the problems that are happening. But the way that you tackle things is really positive. And even the way that you talk about things is really positive. And I know that that could be like Pollyanna of me. And I know that like Gina calls me like, you know, yeah. like a psychopathic, optimistic person. Yeah. <laughs> but I really feel that way in life. And there's a way that you can talk about things where there's like pointing out all the things that are bad and then going deeper on that and like 
getting mired in the negativity, but that doesn't change anything. I think you change things with that positive, the positivity. And I give you a lot of credit for that. It's like, you're always looking at things from a really, like you said, glass half full perspective of like, how can you change it? How can we be? We're not going to like pretend it didn't happen and it's not happening. I think sometimes people get more attention from focusing on the negative and getting people really like riled up and angry. Absolutely. And that's probably, you know, as you've gotten to know me over the years and as I hope our listeners, your listeners will buy and read the book, I try to meet people where they are. Shaming, blaming, naming, all of those things are just going to divide us further apart. And so if I'm going to point fingers at you and be like, you did this and you did that and you made me feel this way. And it's like, well, okay, how can we learn from this experience and show up and do better and be better for each other. And that's what I hope the book achieves. Okay. So let's talk about the book. It comes out. It's not out yet. So I haven't read it. So we're going to talk about it in theoretically, and I want you to break it down for me, but the way that you're thinking about reimagining inclusion is looking at it through DEI myths and you break down into 13 different myths that you say are holding us back from workplace yeah. transformation, which is a cool way to think about it because you know, there's a lot of preconceived notions or myths that people get stuck yeah. into that are easy outs. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So how did you come up with that idea and what are some of the myths? Well, I came up with the idea of just to have done this work for a long time. I've been a marketer for many years. I still continue to be passionate about storytelling and now leading diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. There are just things that we hold on to that we think are true. That's what myths are, right? They're stories that we've made up that have been passed down from generation to generation. And you think about in the workplace. So one of the myths would be, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Our ad wasn't racist. It was simply a mistake. I know one that you and Gina will really be interested in to dig into is, of course, we support women. We extended maternity leave. So every myth starts out, every chapter starts out with a powerful story that's happened somewhere in corporate America. I know that people will read these stories and be like, oh, that was in my company or I've been in that room or that's happened to me. And I really debunk why that's not true and and what we do differently and how to show up. And like you said, I really like to think about making things practical, like how could I read this book and show up differently to work tomorrow? So at the end, I really try to leave tips for leaders on what you can do differently. And I think this book for is for anyone who's committed to making a more resilient, inclusive organization. And so that's that's the way in which I wrote it. I think that's awesome. And, and you you do point out that there's a lot of inherent bias. We all have inherent bias, right? So you have to understand it and like confront it. And then figure out how to work around it. So what are some of the tips that you give people? Because that's really hard for people to feel the vulnerability and shame around their own bias. Yeah. So pointing it back at them. Pointing it back at them. Absolutely. So one of the myths, of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave. I was excited to include the second shift in that as a resource for particularly when there are leaves and how do you cover them? Because that's a big point of discussion. I didn't know that. Thank you. Yes, I'm surprising you and telling you. And Gina, Thank you. Within that. And I just, didn't, I didn't ask. I just included you. you. You knew the answer was yes. Yes. So, you know, when you think about the bias we have, even the term working mothers, which I've stopped using, I now say language is constantly evolving. I talk about in the book. I talk about, I'm a mother. 
I'm a mother to Jay and Priya. I work outside the home. All parents are working. And so even the language I grew up with this idea of being a working mother, what does that mean? Like other mothers aren't working. And then what does it mean? Do we ever say a working father? No. And so all of these biases on like the tongue in cheek about we extended maternity leave. It is so much more than that because I talk about in the book, the cost and the price of my career of deciding to have children. And I wouldn't change that for the world, but I never thought about the bias I would face as a mother, right? Are you on leave? No. Are you on vacation? No, I'm on leave. If you're here, who's watching your children? Do you not want to raise them? Do you want a nanny to raise them? Aren't you going to go part-time? Why are you so ambitious? Why are you still worried about your career? Why are you asking for that promotion? You just got back from leave. Don't worry about it. And so all of these things, and I would say this is not just about men thinking about this of women. It's about all of us, right? Thinking about this, because some of these things, I will say from my perspective growing up as the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents, they're the first 18 years of what happens in your home is important, however you were raised. And we carry that with us to work, the roles we expect of women and the bias that comes up at work. And so really, I always say like, you might have that thought in your head. I might wonder, oh, Jenny's just back from leave. How was that for her? Is she staying? Is she going? Okay, wonder it. You don't have to say it out loud. You can wonder it and check your bias and then actually decide to say something or do something different. It's like a stop, drop, and think. Yes. Before you, before you speak. I like that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like before you say something, just like maybe think through what you might want to say before you say it, because yes. you never know how it's going to land. And not that we all have to walk around like in bubbles, but it's a good practice to just be mindful of yourself and like slow down a minute and just like think about where you're coming from before you open your mouth to say something that could be completely offensive. The other tip I've given the book is just to stop and say, if Jenny was a man, would I be asking her those same questions? If she was a father, would I be having that same train of thought? Why or why not? And so just to really think about that reframing, I think is so important. And listen, if you are human, you have bias. We all have bias. I have bias. We all do. And our job is to interrupt that bias as we show up at work, particularly as we think about how we create more inclusive cultures for women. Yeah. And you say like interrupting bias at key decision points. Yes. What are key decision points where you think of particularly we need to work on our bias? One of the things I talk about in the book is gendered ageism. We don't talk about that enough. Mm. Don't say that out loud. We don't talk about the fact that I might sound young and I'm professionally immature or I'm not wearing makeup one day and I look old, right? All the ways in which we view and evaluate women. And so I have been, Jenny, in too many conversations in my career where we're trying to actively recruit candidates and the conversation about Mita might be like, oh, I don't think she has professional maturity. She just seems young. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Like, I want facts, not feelings, right? As Dee and I talk about on Brown Table Talk podcast, like, what are the facts? Like, what led you to believe that she is young and professionally mature other than the way she sound or dressed or looked? Like that, you know, so there's that. There's also, I don't know if Mita has the energy to keep up hmm. with this fast pace. I don't know if she could do it. You're like, okay, again, what does that mean? 
like facts, feelings, like let's unpack that. And so if you are in that situation, you could be asking, well, tell me more. I heard you say that you think Mita can't keep up with the pace here. Can you provide some examples from your discussion in the interview? And so in that way, I'm not saying to you, oh, Jenny, you don't want to hire Mita because you think she's old or you think she's young. And then I'm putting you on the spot or making you sort of feel cornered about what you just said, but I'm trying to get you to explore why you said that. And so that's like one key decision point. Another one would be, I mean, we've all been in these large, I mean, I've been in many talent reviews, right? (laughs) Where you're just like trying to assess who is getting promoted and who's getting paid. And McKinsey and Lenin have been doing the study since 2016 that continues to show that women have lower promotion rates than men. I mean, I'm sure this has been going on before 2016, but it's been documented for some time. And so the question would be like, okay, you have Jenny and Jim, I'm just going to use that as an example. Okay. So like Jenny needs more points on the board, right? But Jim is being promoted off potential, but Jim actually doesn't have points on the board, right? It's sort of that language. And so really trying to think, are you evaluating talent equitably? What sort of language are we using? Jenny is just like really abrasive and aggressive. Oh, Jim is really driven and is exceeding goals. You see the difference? Like you're doing the same thing, but it's the way in which you're described. And so those are again, like, well, tell me more. Why do we think Jenny is abrasive and aggressive? Why are we using the language and what examples do we have? Do you get a lot of pushback when that's your role in that room to push against people's bias and to unpack what they mean? Because I I imagine people are very uncomfortable having to face what they're, what they really mean. But listen, that's the job of leadership. Yeah. Right. And so here's the thing, what I want to say to anyone listening, it's not my job as the chief diversity officer, it's all of our jobs. Right. And so oftentimes I have stopped going to talent reviews because I don't want to be the person who's sitting there. Right. I'll do that on purpose. And I'll say, although I have allies in the room and I'll say, you know, I know that there's a few vice presidents who are going to speak up and it's about respectfully challenging each other with kindness and you can't take it personally, right? If someone points it out, you should say, wow, thank you. Like, you know, thank you for that. I didn't think about it that way. And so this idea that we just run and jump to being self-defensive to think about someone's pointing it out and to sort of sit with it and be like, huh, I hadn't thought about that before. It's very, it's tricky. And we, as part of the second shift, you know, we have the recruiting part of our business, which is working with clients and connecting them with the women in our network. And the feedback we get is sometimes just like astounding to us because we're not, you know, we're not sitting in those talent meetings. We're not in the corporate world, but when you're hearing what people are being evaluated on and a lot of it's age, Mm -hmm. you know, it is the age. It is like, you know, she hasn't done this thing. She didn't go to this school. She's been, you know, it, it's, we can hear and see yeah. in between the lines, what people are trying to say, even if they're not willing to say it. And like, think like, well, she doesn't have this exact experience. And you're like, well, okay, but you wanted 10 other things. And so that one thing she doesn't have. So exactly. what do you actually, what do you actually say? Yes. And what, what do you actually want? What's the skills versus the experience, right? Which is why we made it. We don't have people's profiles that have ages and faces and dates because it it should be blind to 
who yep. this person is outside of the pitch that Absolutely. they sent. Are you interested in this person's pitch based on that, not based on the color of her skin or her age or Absolutely. where she went to school? Then you can go farther in and find out that information, but it's not upfront. It's not, you're not swiping on somebody's face because if you were, everyone in our network would get swept over. Yeah. I mean, what you bring up is really interesting because in your situation, you're the client that there's the client and you as the partner. Yes. How do you respectfully, you know, help people see, well, okay, it's not about the experience. It's about the skills. Here are the things that you said you wanted, like being a mirror and reflecting back to them. So here- You have to do it very carefully. Carefully, right? That's where this work can be exhausting, right? So the downside is it is exhausting and I enjoy doing it, but it's the constant like wanting to make sure you meet people where they are and help them understand where there's areas of opportunity and how they could be thinking differently. That was a very political way of saying that. Very diplomatic. It's true, but you know, I do flaw where there's an opportunity. Opportunity, not flaws. Opportunity. Yeah, I changed. See, language matters. It's evolving. I don't always say the right thing. Language does matter. What are some of the things that you're seeing right now in the workplace that you think would be important for women looking for work or for clients that, you know, should really be on the forefront of where they're thinking right now? You know, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this was what's changed in four years, you asked me. The pandemic has had a devastating impact on women in the workplace, and we still aren't talking about that impact, right? And just as you said, many women didn't have a choice. They had to leave the workforce. And so now as they're trying to come back, this bias leaders have, hiring managers, recruiters. Well, Mita has this gap for two years. What was she doing? Uh, There was a global pandemic. She was homeschooling her kid. She was ra- she was raising her children. She was trying to keep them alive and healthy, right? And so just that sort of bias of interrupting, like, why is there a gap on the resume? Like dismissing the fact that someone has a gap and not giving them a callback. The statistics are very high, right? For people who have gaps on their resumes who won't get a callback. And so really trying to think about, and I know LinkedIn as a platform has really tried to interrupt that bias of really you know, being able to put on your resume that you are a stay-at-home parent or you're taking time off or doing a sabbatical. I, ha- I worry about that. Yeah. I think some things are very good in a utopia, but not in reality. But I, I think that's fair. That's fair feedback. But I think it's our job to pause and say, okay, why wouldn't I look at this candidate? Oh because yeah, for sure. It, does, it shouldn't hold you back. Yeah. Um, but I can understand that people could perceive that as a, well, as a label that you wouldn't want. Again, I like to like, you know, we don't need to put everything. You should be held at the merit of what you do and how that's you present yourself. And then we can discuss the other things yeah. after, yeah. but that's probably also very optimistic of me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it is amazing though, with the pandemic, how fast yes. people forget that it even happened. I mean, it happened and there's, yeah, it happens. And I don't know how many, millions of people lost their lives globally. I mean, it happened and we lived through it. And so I think many of us, I know many people are still living through, especially frontline workers, the trauma of how they worked really hard to keep our economy afloat, not just in the US, but globally. So I think there's that. Um, I also think there's this idea and notion that Dee and I have been talking about, about like our employee referrals dead, <laughs> asking people for referrals, right? 
when they're getting hired. And I, in a recent podcast episode said, you know what, I think we're all in a position to ask for a company for referrals, meaning like, why should I work here? Right. There's this old school model of like, oh, you're about to make me an offer, but then you want me to give you five. Oh, you know what? I meant references. Sorry. I know what you meant. References. Yeah. I need more coffee. References, references, references. And so you're like, okay, now I have to give you five references. You're like, all right, this is, you know, very sort of a, I would say old school approach. And I'm sort of like at this point, like, hey, if you are in the marketplace looking for a job right now, do your research on the employer. There's plenty of ways to do it, right? And so I've done this, Jenny, with almost every job I've gotten as I've gotten smarter and wiser over the years. If Jenny makes me an offer, I'm going to say, thank you very much. I'm really excited. There are three other people I'd like to meet with in your organization, right? Like I haven't met with general counsel. I haven't met with this person. Like I'd like to understand more about how this part of the business runs. And then you have the control because you've got the offer, but you can then do your due diligence, right? There's Glassdoor, there's Google, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, and there's also LinkedIn to reach out to people who have worked there through your network, right? Oh, you know, so-and-so, I saw that you once worked with Jenny. I'd like to learn more about her leadership style or the company she's leading. And most people would be willing to give a few minutes of their time. And so just my advice is like, do your homework, as you're trying to think about where you want to land, because it's a two-way street, right? It's a two-way street. Okay. What else? What are some of the other things that are like, what's like the trends of DEI right now? What are you seeing positively or, you know, we've talked negatively, but what do you, what are your, some of the things that are actively being used and you've seen as successful in this moment? Well, I, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm seeing is Gen Z is going to totally disrupt the workplace. And I knew that, no, they say that about every generation entering, but Gen Z is a generation that's like values are really important. And I think that even across generations, you're still seeing what Edelman has done in terms of their trust barometer survey. They talk about belief-driven buying. You're still seeing that. Like consumers are buying brands and buying from companies where their values match theirs, right? And that is becoming more increasingly difficult for CEOs and founders because what am I supposed to talk about? When am I supposed to talk about it? I'm not saying that you should talk about everything, but I'm saying you should talk about things that are really important to your values of your company and how you lead. And I think that's what people are looking for. And and silence in many ways is now not okay, right? On some really big issues, like employees are forgotten consumers, Jenny. Employees will be like, hey, like this is really important. This happened. And you're staying silent on this, or this happened, and I'm not seeing any sort of policy changes. Like, what are you going to do about it? And I think more and more, as I talk about in the book, it's not the CEO sending some sort of mass email, like this happened. It is about us as individuals checking in on each other, right? That this has happened in our world today. God forbid it's another school shooting. It's another Black American who's been killed. It's another Asian American who's been killed. Anti-Semitism. There's so much happening in our world today. And so I think this need to check in on each other becomes more and more important. And it's no longer like a nice to have. I think it's becoming a need to have. And leaders need to be skilled in, in checking in on their people. I love that. You're such an empathetic person. And I think that being in your role really lends itself to that. Like, you have to be sort of taking the temperature and thinking about other people's perspectives and where they may be coming from. And in some ways, like we teach our children empathy and we try to have them live from somebody else's shoes. Yeah. And it isn't always easy. 
Yeah. And, you know, as, when you're the parent, you're always like, you know, do that, but also listen to me and don't give me a problem. Right. And I think in some ways that's like a company is like the parent. It's like, you want to be empathetic all the time and listen and have everyone's perspectives, but then you're also like, okay, but we also just need to get out the door. Yeah. That's a great analogy. It's true. It is true. I mean, the last thing I'll say when you ask for trends, and I don't think this is a trend, I think this is an ongoing conversation, is really this, and I talk about it in my book as a myth, is that these DEI efforts don't benefit me. My voice as a white man doesn't count anymore. Hmm. And so understanding how we can include white men in DEI, and again, not to shame, blame, name them in the work that we're doing, but to include them and just to understand that inclusion is a driver of the business. I hate to bring up the business case. Some people need to hear it again, but the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion is there. I mean, there's right now over $3.2 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer in the U.S. alone, according to Nielsen. So if you are not thinking about that, if you are struggling for growth, you have to ask yourself who you're selling to and who you're not selling to and why. And if you don't have those communities represented in your workforce, then how are you ever going to reach them and serve them authentically? And so that's where I think things are really shifting and really ensuring that everyone's included in this work and that they understand their role in it. On that note, I know you have to get on with your day and your many different hats that you wear. And I love seeing you. I love having this conversation. I congratulate you on this book. I can't wait. When is the launch? Launches October 3rd, but please go ahead and pre-order it on Amazon. It is available right now and you will not be disappointed. I know it's going to make a big impact for individuals as well as organizations. For everyone listening, the pre-order is the big deal. It so is. The book will come out in October, but for Mita or for anyone else that we have on here, the pre-order makes their sales. It's not about like buying it when it first comes out or when you see even see it at the bookstore. It's about buying it ahead of time because those numbers impact where the book comes out on whatever list that you're monitoring or care about. So for this, like you now have six months nearly, like go buy the book, pre-order it. I'm going to put the link on for everyone for the podcast and through our newsletter, everything, I'll put the link because if you want to help me to and be supportive, pre-order the book. Thank you so much. Thank you to Jenny, you and Gina for the impact you're making in the world with everything you're doing. And thank you for having me. So happy to see you. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.